You are listening to the Canadian Immigration Podcast, episode 66. With Citizenship and Immigration Canada making it increasingly difficult to speak to an officer, there are a few places to turn for information that can be relied upon. The Canadian Immigration Podcast was created to fill this void by offering the latest information on Canadian law, policy, and practice. Please welcome ex-immigration officer and Canadian immigration lawyer, Mark Holthy. As he answers a wide variety of immigration questions and shares practical tips and guidance to help you along your way. Well, hello there and welcome back to the Canadian Immigration Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Holfe, coming to you from the beautiful province of Alberta. Now, many of you may not know, I'm actually broadcasting from my office in Lethbridge, Alberta, the sunny south. And today was a beautiful day. I had a chance to ride my bike in. It was about one degree Celsius. I bundled up and and pedaled on in. And uh, I'll tell you, I'm so grateful that this warm Chinook wind comes in, blows the snow away and allows me to ride. Otherwise, it's just, I've got this steep hill I've got to climb through the river valley from the west side of Lethbridge to my office. And when it snows and when it's icy, I just, I can't ride. So it was a beautiful day. And uh, today I'm um, I'm going to be pushing this episode out January the 26th of 2019. And as you've seen, there's been some changes. And one of the changes is, is that I am now officially moving to a straight episode uh, numbering system. So this is episode 66. Season 3 and Season 2 and Season 1 are all a thing of the past. And in fact, it's probably a good thing that Season 3 is a thing of the past because I did not get too many episodes pushed out. Now, this episode is going to be awesome. And uh, as a business immigration lawyer, I have had lots of opportunity to... Um, to really interact with companies and with foreign workers and that whole side of immigration practice. Um, over the years, I've been able to develop a little bit of expertise. But when it comes to the topic of this episode, refugee law, it is completely outside of my expertise. And so when that happens, you turn to people that know what they're doing in that area. And the person I've invited on, Hart Kamenker, is an awesome refugee lawyer in Ontario. And as you see, as we just shift over to the interview, I'll tell you how I actually got introduced to him. And you'll love the story. It's hilarious. It's one of those self-deprecating stories where, you know, you say something and then you wish you hadn't said it, but in the end, it turns out okay. <laughs> that was that was kind of what happened to me as, uh, as I was uh, introduced to Hart and um, the events leading up to him joining me. And so I'm super grateful for him. And uh, we'll get to his introductions in a little bit bit. Um, Yeah, so going forward, you can see 2018 wasn't spectacular. And I want to express appreciation to all of you listeners who've stuck it out, who have been patient and uh, have recognized that the episodes are not turning out like they should, or at least like they used to. And so this year, 2019, even though we're already the end of January, um, I've got some lofty goals. And one of my goals is to actually hit 100, if possible, episodes by the end of 2019. So right now we're at, this is 66, so you can do the math. Uh, It's pretty lofty goal. We'll see if it's possible. I think it is. 
Um, but 2018 was definitely tough. And uh, I did a couple interviews. And in fact, I want to extend as, as Hart will probably listen to this. Uh, an apology to Hart. He actually did this interview back on November the 5th, 2018. Fortunately, there hasn't been a significant change in uh, the area that he's covering. So the information he has is still is still fresh. Um, but uh, yeah, everything happened. Um, I lost a paralegal. And you guys know if you're, you know, anyone who has an, a legal assistant that you rely on and, and then you no longer have them. So I intended to get this podcast uh, for Heart released in December. And, and then I lost one of my paralegals, which meant I basically had no Christmas. And then... Um, which was not too happy for my family. Well, it wasn't a happy experience for them because I, I basically had to work all through all through Christmas and all through all the breaks. And then once I made it through and, and some of my staff came back from their Christmas vacations, I then shifted uh, my gears and focused on getting away from the office headed to Maui and spent 10 days there with my family. So now I'm back in the office I've got mounds of work around me, but I just said, this is it. We're going to make this a priority. And that's exactly what I am doing right now. So I am so grateful um, for Hart and uh, his willingness to come on and, and do this episode because, guys, it's awesome. It is really, really good. And he shared some insight on the whole process that um, that you're definitely not going to want to miss. So even if you don't practice in the area, listen, because this he shared some great insight. We talked about a number of things, safe third country especially, and just life as an immigration, or I should say as a refugee lawyer. So tune in. All right. Um, with that being said, um, yeah, let's just jump right now to that interview with Hart Kaminker. Well, I am here with uh, Hart Kaminker who is an immigration lawyer practicing in Toronto, and uh, he is the principal of uh, Kaminker and Associates. Um, welcome to the show, Hart. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. Well, Hart has been uh, practicing since 92, and he has earned a reputation amongst his clients and colleagues as a highly skilled, compassionate, and trusted lawyer. And that is what his website says. And I can confirm personally that uh, that that's not just his own um, thoughts on on the way he practices, but I have to share an interesting story here with our listeners. Um, every once in a while, I'll have individuals reach out to um, inquire if they can be guests on the show, and sometimes I'm not familiar with the individual, so I do a little bit of research. And uh, this uh, recently, uh, I wasn't familiar with Hart before I had him uh, come and join me here on the podcast. And so I reached out to a couple of my friends, at least I thought it was a couple of my friends, <laughs> just saying, hey, has anyone heard of Hart uh, practicing in Toronto? And then usually I'll get some feedback and our community, our, our immigration bar is pretty small, so it doesn't take too, too long for people to, to give feedback. Little did I know, instead of replying to a small little uh, group of friends that I have, I actually replied to our entire Canadian Bar Association's immigration listserv. <laughs> and so, um, aside from the embarrassment I had for asking the question, instantly, and I'm, I'm talking instantly, there were probably 10 to 15 people who replied and uh, had nothing but good things to say about Hart, including past roommates that you had, people you'd gone to law school with, and and just a number of people. And so uh, 
you know, aside from my own embarrassment and the follow-up email I then sent to the group, I even had people say, no, we're, we're grateful that you asked because he's one of the good guys. So I am delighted to have you, uh, you join me, Hart, and, uh, and just be able to, to, to learn and benefit from the topic that we're going to be covering today, which is kind of the current status of refugee law. So great to have you. Well, thank, thank you. All right. Okay. Now, in terms of your background, Hart, um, I know that you, you pretty much are, you know, you've got experience in all facets of immigration and citizenship law, but you tend to focus a little bit more on, on litigation. Um, well, that in conjunction with, you know, the traditional application side of things, but right. um, you, uh, you have particular expertise in, in reviewing sometimes the decisions of officers and, and with the whole world of tribunals and, uh, and federal court, et cetera. Um, how did you get into all of this? Okay, well, that, that, so basically when I uh, got out of law school, it was in the, or finished articling, I guess, it was in the early 90s, which was, I guess, a downtime for the economy in Canada. And there weren't, uh, you know, there, there were definitely less uh, jobs around for young lawyers than there might have been a little bit before or even a little bit after. And um, somebody that was a roommate, actually is an immigration lawyer, a, a a fellow by the name of Ben Krantz, uh, who was a roommate of a friend of mine uh, when I was an undergrad at Western, uh, called me up and said, uh, you know, understood I was looking for work and would I be interested in coming to work for him? And at the time, uh, he was working together with Giddy Mammon and uh, they had lots of work to do. And that's basically how, so it's like total accident. I was looking for work, really any kind of work, civil litigation, corporate, whatever might have been out there. And this is what came up and I never looked back. You know, and that, that response that you've given there is probably, oh, 70 to 80% of the, uh, the other lawyers that I bring on the podcast, you know, through circumstances and, and fate and, and everything else, uh, we get our first introduction into immigration and we never look back. And uh, I know I've said this repeatedly on other podcasts. Immigration is one of those areas where you feel like you're, you're genuinely making a difference in people's lives. And uh, I know when I started law school, I was fortunate to land a job at one of the national firms. And it didn't take me long to realize that mergers and acquisitions was just unbelievably dry and boring. And litigation was too contentious. No one was happy. And so to find immigration, uh, it was just the perfect, perfect fit for me. And, and I know for many of the other uh, guests that I've had on the podcast. So very, very neat. Now, in addition to um, everything else that you've got going on with immigration, you, you also serve uh, on the board of governors at Beth Tikva Synagogue. Um, what is that like? Well, I, I think... It, 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 well, it's good. I mean, I like to give back to 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 various community organizations and doing things outside of my, I guess, my everyday legal life, and it's also good education. I mean, it's a good education to I, to work within a nonprofit organization, and to deal with all the issues that come up in that kind of organization. And I think as well to serve with other members of the community who are leaders in their field, either business or medicine, or perhaps other lawyers working in other areas, and learning from them. So I think it's overall, overall, it's been a overall, it's been a very, very good uh, learning experience. It's been a great learning experience for me. And I've learned a lot uh, from working, uh, you know, from volunteering in that area, and also from the people that I volunteered with. Yeah, that's wonderful. I think people don't fully appreciate, um, you know, the, you know, some one of the things that I look at when I'm having guests come on the podcast is, is, uh, is try to find lawyers that are doing it right. You know, we all have very busy practices and it would be very, very easy for us to just 
do the file work, the work that we get paid for, and go home and spend the rest of the time with our with our families. But to a large extent, um, all of us feel this added obligation and, and just the desire to be involved in our communities and to give back and to help and make, you know, make our communities and our, um, you know, our, our faiths and everything else that we're associated with just that much better. Um, and, uh, and, and so that, that, that's great. And I l- really love to highlight these things as well. You're also involved with the UJA Israel Engagement Committee. Can you talk a little bit about that? So my involvement... Um with that committee uh, was that uh, Israel, <clears throat> through its agency, sends over uh, young young teenagers, those who have just graduated high school and before going on to their military service in Israel. So a certain select few are, I guess, allowed to postpone military service for a year, and they come to um, Jewish communities, primarily, I believe, in North America. Toronto actually has a, a large contingent, and uh, these students come over and they work in Jewish institutions for a year. And my involvement with that committee was to act as a liaison um, for the synagogue that I belong to between this, the young adults that were working in our synagogue and our synagogue and the other institutions as well that they were working in. So if they had an issue with one of the institutions or perhaps just an issue with living here in Canada, uh, they would come to to me, and we would try to resolve the issue together. And they, again, I think it, uh, no, we, it, you know, I believe it's important to give back to the community. And certainly, you know, we've learned a lot. I guess from I, I learned a lot from in, engaging with those kids and learning about their lives in Israel, and also about you know how they perceive Canada. Neat. I, before we we got on here, I was just talking to Hart about the fact I've got two kids that are serving missions for our church and. One of them just left last Monday, um, and he is down in Suriname, which is actually a Dutch-speaking country down in, in South America. And, uh, you know, as a parent, when you turn your kids loose, and he, he's 18, so he's, <laughs> he's still pretty young, yeah. and going to a strange country and, and uh, a whole new experience, um, we are unbelievably grateful for the... Um, uh, there, there's a couple missionaries that are adult retired missionaries that serve down there too, that basically take care of these kids and make sure that they're safe. And, and, uh, Facebook is a wonderful thing because they've, we knew exactly where he was when he, when he landed, uh, in, uh, uh, Parmaribo and, and, uh, you know, who he's with and, you know, pictures of him on his bike and all these things. And, and so we're so, you know, as, a, as a, my wife and I are so very grateful for people to do that kind of volunteer work. And so I can see the parents on the other side that are sending their kids to Canada and uh, knowing that there's good people um, on this side that are uh, that are taking care of them. So very neat. Very neat. Love yeah. it. All right. Well, why don't we dive into our topic here? And I know this is uh, an area that you've got a lot of experience with, Hart. Um, sure. We, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about the current state of uh, refugee law here in Canada. And the three areas that we're going to cover are, one, the current influx of refugees, which has obviously been a, a fairly um, polarizing issue, I guess, and, and one that's been in the news a lot um, over the last, well, especially last year and, and a little bit into this year. It seems like it's, they found other areas to, uh, to, to draw um, attention to in the press lately, but, but that's a, a reality. Uh, scheduling issues at the RPD, and we're going to conclude with life as a refugee lawyer and what one might expect as you dive into this area of the law. So what do you think about all of this this influx of refugees? How is it, how is it impacted, Hart? 
Well, I think it's it's impacted in a lot of ways. I guess one is it's um, basically, I guess, put what was envisioned, I guess, by the previous government, the Conservative government, of a fairly streamlined and fast process where claims were uh, found eligible and then heard within 60 days um, for claimants from DCO designated countries of origin faster than that, that that's completely gone by the wayside. So that is no longer is no longer followed. And so I think that's been one significant impact. And so the other significant impact is that people are waiting a long time for their claims to be heard, uh, in some cases up to a year or more, uh, which is a significant difference, I guess, from the early days when the first when the changes first came in at the end of 2012, beginning of 2013, where claims were being heard within that 60 day time frame. And I think it's frustrating for clients, you know, who come here and they have to wait a long time to to learn whether or not their claim is going to be accepted, and it it causes stress on the clients. And having said that, you know, obviously, you know, we've Canada's got a very long uh, tradition of being generous to refugees, and I think we need to hear everybody, you know, that comes to the border seeking protection and give them a fair chance to present their case and make a determination as to whether or not their claim has merit. So you've got a lot of competing issues. And on the one side, trying to get people heard as quickly as possible. And on the other side, trying to accommodate everybody who needs to be heard. Hmm. You know, I've uh, obviously when the, the changes that, that the Conservatives uh, brought forward were designed to fast track the whole determination process. I, these processing times, Hart, are you seeing them continuing to climb or, or have they, they kind of leveled off now? Uh, it's hard to say because I guess how that influx has played out um, is I think still needs to be seen. But I would say hopefully the longer processing times have leveled off. It's also difficult to discern you know, exactly, uh, you know, sitting here because because I, our office does a fair amount of um, refugee claims at the first instance at the RPD. And we've seen variations in timing. So some claims, although the government's, you know, I guess public position, as I understand it, is first in, first out. Yeah. We've definitely seen cases where people have come in after other individuals having their claims heard uh, and really the scheduling officer that we speak to not really being able to give us an answer as to why you know certain people are being heard faster than others but definitely but but i think i'm hopeful that it's leveling off and that people are going to be heard within a year maybe a little bit less maybe a little bit more mm -hmm. and so when these individuals come in and you know those of our listeners who maybe are not lawyers and are just yeah. tuning into the podcast when these individuals come into canada um, how do they support themselves while they're waiting up to a year for um, for their claim to be heard? So most claimants are will be eligible to apply for a work permit as soon as they file, you know, if their paperwork. So if you have people coming irregularly over the border, for example, uh, you know, through Quebec, th as soon as they file their basis of claim form, they would be and, and complete their medical they would be eligible for a work permit. So I think in the interim, these people, I believe, either would be relying perhaps on family support if they have family in Canada, or they'd be relying on government assistance until they can get a work permit. Once they get a work permit, then they're able to work. You know, Having said that, it's not always that easy 
um, for refugees to find work, you know, for a variety of reasons. But I think, you know, the, the top one being that, um, you know, employers perhaps see them as being less stable, mm-hmm. you know, that while well, you're here now, but I don't know that you're going to be here two or three months from now. So they may be less inclined to offer them a position. And that's certainly something, you know, that I've heard from refugee, some refugee claimants that it, it's a challenge even with the work permit. I mean, there are some countries, though, so the designated country of origin countries, they have to wait six months to get a work permit under the regulations. And um, and I think that's problematic in mm-hmm. the current the current system because the idea, I guess, with DCOs is that they'd be in and out quickly if their claim had no merit. But now... You know, they've got to wait six months. And that that provision actually is currently subject to a challenge in the federal court. So, you know, hopefully that might be overturned. Yeah. Or, or set aside, you know, excuse me, found unconstitutional. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's interesting because there's, you know, I think some people that are unfamiliar with the process are not aware, one, that they are issued work permits. So the question becomes, okay, well, are we just supporting them? And then the other, uh, the other issue, or I should say the other thing that, you know, when we do understand that they are getting given work permits, I don't think many of us uh, fully appreciate how difficult it is, like you said, to get that work, um, to get that job um, for the exact reasons that you mentioned. And they're, they're valid practical reasons. And in, you know, in some cases, there's, you know, there may even be some language barriers and things like that to employment. But, uh, but overall, the system is designed for refugees to come in or refugee claimants to come in and um, be given that work permit so that they can support themselves while they're waiting and that it, they're not going to be a drain on, um, on Canada's resources. But, uh, but these are, yeah, these are very, very valid, valid concerns. Um, you're, now, what, when I think about these refugees coming in, how do they find your office? How do they ultimately arrive, um, uh, you know, in, in your firm, if, you know, whether they're coming through the, you know, the border and, in Quebec or through another avenue, how do they end up finding you? So, so I think there would be two ways. One, uh, I think the, the, the majority of them are just coming through word of mouth. So people that, you know, could be relatives or friends that I have represented previously and they've given them my name to come and see me. So I think that in our office, that's the primary way in which people are coming to us. The secondary way would be legal we do accept legal aid here so legal aid has a panel of refugee lawyers so sometimes they just call us from the list of panel lawyers as they're going through the list trying to find a lawyer that can assist them but the primary way in our office is really through word of mouth i mean i think as i would say most refugee lawyers you tend to you know over time concentrate within certain communities and so again you know your name may be known in a particular community and people within that community would refer uh, these individuals to our office. Gotcha. So right now, when it comes to the actual scheduling at the RPD, you're, you're saying that it's it's taking up to a year to actually get there. Right. So initially, I mean, the way the process worked, again, when we go back to the late 2000, well, I guess 2013, I guess is really when the process came in, in, into being the new RPD, you would get a hearing date when, uh, you know, if you came to the port of entry, you'd get your hearing date there. If you made a claim inland and at a local IRCC office, you'd get a hearing date there. And that's the practice that was followed up until I would say maybe about two months ago. Now what happened over the last year is that hearing date was always canceled 
because the uh, board just could not accommodate uh, uh, accommodate the person. And so now what they've done is, uh, and then they, you know, they go into a queue waiting for their hearing to be heard. Now they do not give hearing dates. What they do is just give a notice that your claim has been found eligible and is referred to the RPD. And the RPD would, you know, I guess for Get unrepresented people would be in touch with them directly and for represented people be in touch with their counsel. And so that's been one, I guess, significant change um, in the last couple of months. I think the other change would be, you know, would be certainly you know, trying to expedite more cases. So trying to determine more cases without a hearing, certainly over the last year, I would say to 18 months, list of countries that are eligible to have claims expedited has expanded. And that certainly, I think, assists in trying to uh, deal with the backlog because you don't have to actually bring the claimant into a hearing room. The member would make that decision, you know, in, in their office based upon the documentation that's been filed. Now, which, um, just off the top of your head, what are some of those countries that are, are eligible for this process? So uh, I stand to be corrected, but well, Egypt for sure is one because I do a lot mm -hmm. of Egypt. So I know that for a fact, Turkey is another, uh, Syria would be another, yeah. Iraq, I believe is on that list. Uh, those would be the ones that I can think of. Yeah, off the top of your head. So yeah. from a practical standpoint, then, just, just to clarify, so there is, in those circumstances, there's a little bit more deference to the claim as opposed to the need for formal hearing to make those determinations. Uh, they can just essentially do it based on the, the paper uh, application that's been filed. Correct. So those would be countries that have, they have to have a certain acceptance rate which I honestly, I don't know off the top of my head. Yeah, that's okay. It would be countries where I guess the country conditions sort of speak for themselves mm -hmm. and really, you know, the, the, for example, there wouldn't be issues of whether, you know, the police can assist certain kinds of claimants or just, just the general, um, the, the general conditions in the country are such that really it's just about whether or not the people, the, the claimants have documentation to back up what they said has happened to them. So that yeah. could be medical reports, police reports if, if applicable. And so they just look at that information and the country, the objective evidence and be able to make a determination without seeing the, the uh, without seeing the claimants. Hmm. Now this is just a practical practice related question. And just to clarify for the listeners, obviously I do not practice in this area. So I'm okay. as, I'm as green and as, as naive, I guess, as, as anyone okay. out there. But when you're going through this process, um, it's my understanding that credibility is obviously a pretty important aspect of it. Um, when you have individuals that are coming from these countries, especially ones that are, you know, that are in rough shape, how do you actually accumulate or how do you acquire the documentation that you need to support what they're saying? That's got to be a challenge. It, no, it, it, you know, it, it definitely it, it is a challenge, undoubtedly. So. You, you do the best you can. The, the claimants will do their best, do the best they can to try to procure documents that would help support their claims. So, medical reports, for example, if they still have family members on the ground in the country, they may try to get family members to get the medical reports. They may have had them anyway for some other reason. So, if they know where they are, again, if they know people in the country that can locate the documents and get them for them, that would be a way to do it. But also, just getting statements from people. Who may still be in the country of origin, maybe elsewhere, who were familiar with what the claimant went through, getting statements or affidavits from those individuals is helpful. I mean, having said that, I think you no know, board members should, and hopefully most do, recognize 
that in certain countries there are challenges in getting documents. And so, uh, you know, just hearing the claimant themselves uh, and understanding what the claimant is describing is consistent with what they know has gone on and is going on in the country can be sufficient to grant a successful claim. That And that makes perfect sense. Within your practice, um, obviously, there's been um, quite a lot of coverage regarding the individuals that are coming in from the U.S., you know, through Quebec and some of the other, um, you know, uh, crossing crossing the border uh, through irregular entries. Um, how have you seen that impact in your practice? Um, are you seeing more of those individuals coming coming through and, 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 and using your services? Um, or has it pretty much kind of been the status quo? No, I would say definitely the number of people who are coming to seek our services has increased it's in a, certainly refugee claimants without a doubt so we've seen an, a, a definite uptick in the number of people who are calling us and you know asking to see us to help them and represent them in connection with the refugee claims so with the rising numbers of people that have come over the border like well through quebec manitoba i guess some through british columbia uh we've definitely seen a rise of people coming to our office asking for assistance as compared to, I would say, 18 to 24 months ago. And that makes sense. Um, I know some of our listeners may not understand what this is all about, you know, uh, the the obligations that we have um, in terms of accepting uh, refugee claimants and, and how this whole issue of people coming across, and we describe it and define it as, as irregular entries, but what is what is this all about? Maybe you can kind of take just a couple minutes just to explain uh, for the listeners and and like I said, the uh, counsel out there and other immigration lawyers are, are going to be f- very familiar with these, um, you know, with how this works. But uh, some of the other listeners may not understand, you know, why the individuals, you know, we have to accept their refugee claims when they come through and uh, when they're actually crossing through um, non like in locations that are not an actual port of entry and how that dovetails, I guess, or, or, or um, how the, this whole safe third country agreement that we have with the U S how that plays into this. Okay. So it's a, it's a good question. So, you know, the, the driving force, you know, uh, w- would be the change in government in, in the U S in, in November of 2016. And, you know, what is perceived or certainly is a rise. And certainly we've seen it in the run up to the, midterm elections, I guess, tomorrow in the United States, arise in anti-immigrant rhetoric. So we've seen a lot, you know, of people not feeling safe in the U.S. and thus leaving the U.S. Some of them may have had pending claims. Some of them may have been there without status and coming to Canada to to seek protection. Uh, and, and I believe in one case, uh, Haitians, for example, I think there was a big uptick of Haitians, maybe not this past summer, but the summer before when... Um, the U.S. ended what was known as a temporary protected status. A lot came north as well to seek protection. So once somebody arrives in Canada and they're on Canadian soil, our obligations under the U.N. Convention is to accept their claim and to hear and determine their claim. And if their claim has merit, then refugee protected persons in Canada um, have 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 avenue or, or can apply for permanent residence in Canada and do. And if your claim is rejected, then you'd go into, you know, and all appeals flowing from that are rejected, you go into a removal stream. So it's really our, our obligations under the convention, the UN convention, the refugee convention, that uh, means we have to hear these individuals' um, claims and we have to give them an oral hearing. And that flows from the Supreme Court 
decision many, many years ago uh, that uh, refugee claimants who, uh, cl refugee claims in, engage Section 7 rights, right to life, liberty, and security of the person, and have to be given um, the natural justice rights to to address their claim. So with respect to the Safe Third Country, so I think this is also another good question. So the Safe Third Country Agreement means that you are supposed to make a claim in the United States if you arrive there first, or in Canada if you arrive there first, rather than crossing the border either way. There are some exceptions to that, which is known as the anchor relative exception. So if you have a close relative in Canada, like aunt, uncle, brother, sister, mother, father, you could come to a port of entry and make a claim, and people did that certainly over a number of years. The Safe Third Country Agreement only applies um, to a land port of entry, and uh, it does not apply to people who walk over, um, I guess, unguarded portions of the border mm -hmm. and end up in Canada. And once they're in Canada, then that Safe Third Country doesn't apply and the claim is accepted and processed. And so at some point in time, obviously, <clears throat> um, I have to assume refugee lawyers in Canada are starting to question the safe third country, even even the, the foundation of it. And and what are your thoughts on that? Well, my, my thoughts would be, one, I agree. I mean, if, if, if people are uh, coming over the border uh, in, in, in unguarded parts and making refugee claims, then certainly I think the efficacy, the efficiency of the safe third country agreement or its intent, you know, what it's intended to do, it's not doing. I think as well, the other concerning factor is really, you know, whether or not according to our, I guess, our values or how we address and deal with refugee issues, whether the United States remains a safe third country for refugees. And certainly all the rhetoric is about, um, scaling back uh, the ability of individuals to make claims for asylum in the United States. So I think that's a, that's another issue that needs to be looked at uh, with respect to the safe third country and whether or not um, it still should be cons considered a safe third country by Canada for, for those seeking asylum. So do you think at this stage, uh, you know, I, I'm not sure, like I said, w with respect to the refugee lawyers in Canada and the extent to which, you know, we're pushing for... Um, changes to the safe third country in some some respect. I, I, I wonder, are, are we also just kind of taking a little bit of a wait and see <laughs> attitude with, with any potential regime changes down south? I guess, well, I guess we are taking a wait and see. And I, and I assume, you know, that the process of, of uh, changing the safe third country or terminating it probably probably is not that easy. Maybe yeah. it is, but I'm going to guess not. So I think those are factors that play in. And, and I think, you know, as with, you know, immigration law, it has, I think, more so than probably almost any other area of law, certainly has a political aspect to it. Yeah. And, and you know, a lot of decisions are <coughs> driven by politics rather than what might not necessarily be right or wrong from a legal perspective. Yeah. And I think if you look even within our own uh, our own country and our immigration uh, laws and regulations, um, by and large, <laughs> at least within the temporary foreign worker program, I'd have to say that policy was primarily driven by CBC Go Public. <laughs> and right. uh, it's amazing how this exercise of, of public shaming um, influences the development of immigration policy in Canada. And uh, clearly that's also at play with all of these issues related to how we are 
um, how we're managing uh, refugees and, and the future of, of, of uh, you know, our obligations internationally with respect to refugees. Yeah, I agree. And I think, you know, with a general election on the horizon, I guess now less than a year from now, but 11 months from now, I think the issue with, you know, depending on how it plays out over the next several months, I think the issue with respect to um, the, the regulars' uh, arrivals, how those, you know, how those are going to impact government policy. And I guess we have to wait and see, but one would think that it may impact the policy heading into the general election in October, not 2019. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Well, Hart, I know that I have uh, guaranteed there are young lawyers that that listen and are listening in and, um, you know, whether they practice currently in immigration or refugee law at all, um, are, are looking at some good areas for them to actually make a difference in the lives of people. And you've obviously settled in, um, you know, in the area of immigration with a particular focus on refugee matters. What would you say to a young lawyer who was you know, maybe in your, your situation when you started, when they're trying to figure out what they can do and, and uh, are considering refugee law, would you have any thoughts or comments for them? Yeah, well, I think it's, you know, as, as you pointed out at, at the outset, I mean, immigration law can be, I think, exceptionally rewarding. And you can make, a, you're making, if you're successful, and hopefully you are, you're making a tremendous difference in, in the future direction of people's lives and in some cases you know certainly from the refugee perspective taking them out of harm's way and giving them the opportunity to to start a new life here in Canada and that that, that can be you know in, in, incredibly rewarding you know and I think you know as with any profession you know you, you have ups you, you, you have up days and you have down days or you have up weeks and you have down weeks it's, it's just part part of the business but I guess when I when I have those times that I that I feel uh, you know maybe a little bit on the downside, I just think about you know all the people that I've helped, and I think that really over 25 years I guess I've been doing this that that really um, you know really just sort of lifts whatever cloud might have been over my head at that particular point in time, and I think that's that that's a very satisfying aspect, and you'll have people coming back to you, you know, 10 years later with their relative and you remember me and here's my relative. They're here now. You need, can you help them? Yeah. And that's hard. That's, that's the one thing, the one aspect that I think, um, means the most to me. And although I've, you know, for years have focused on business immigration, I'm in Lethbridge, Alberta, which is a small little city. And, and so I see everything here and, uh, it's it's so cool to have clients that you haven't seen for years stop by they bring some form of baked good right. <laughs> whether it's you know uh, i remember i had one client who who uh, him and his wife stayed up all night um uh boy creating this whole assortment of smoked meats and every other kind of thing you could imagine because they were so grateful with the help that we did in, in securing permanent residence status for him and his spouse. And, um, yeah, like that, that human element is what makes it so rewarding, at least from my perspective with respect to immigration, but in like manner, it can be unbelievably painful and frustrating to see someone who you truly believe should have an opportunity here in Canada and through 
maybe no fault of their own, maybe just the circumstances and, and, you know, the, whether it's the lack of evidence or the inability to, you know, to prove who, who is refused. And, um, I know personally, I, well, it's hard not to, um, you know, feel, (laughs) you know, it's hard to kind of distance yourself from that when that, when it happens. And, um, you know, and, and to know that someone has to go back and, and that their claim wasn't successful. But obviously, <clears throat> just giving your, you know, when you know that you've done everything that you can, um, there's a stage where you have to accept that. And uh, I can, you know, for me, I think that would be one of the harder areas of, of refugee law is knowing that despite your best efforts and everything that you do, sometimes the answer is no. Yeah, and that, that that's 100%. I mean, I think that is, you've hit, hit the nail on the head with respect to what is I think the most di- difficult aspect of, of, of refugee law. And sometimes you have to just, um, you just have to keep fighting. And, mm-hmm. you know, one of the, you know, certainly, you know, we have, you know, two younger lawyers um, that work with me here. And uh, I, rem- I, I would tell them about a case where we were in the federal court twice uh, with a fellow trying to bring his wife and uh, children to Canada. And, uh, Finally, we were successful, and he brought his wife to meet me after a number of years of battle in the federal court. And you know, in this something that stuck in my head, he said, "I want to thank you." He said, "Because you never gave up, and I wanted to give up, and I just yeah. want to thank you for never giving up." And that, you know, that that's very satisfying. Yeah, unbelievable. Wow. Well, thank you so much, Hart. <clears throat> I really appreciate you taking the time to come and join me. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. And, uh, and, and just sharing some insight because, you know, this is, this is an area that um, you don't really get a chance too often to see on the other side of the trenches and just seeing what it's like actually advocating and, and working with these people. And I really appreciate the insight um, and also just getting uh, myself and, and our listeners up to speed with where things are at just with the, uh, you know, with, with the, the process and, and um, the practice of refugee law. Now, if people want to reach out to you, which I'm almost positive they will, what is okay. the best way for them to contact you? I think, I think the best way for them to contact me is by email. Uh, so that's hcaminkercaminkerlaw.com. Perfect. Excellent. Well, thank you very, very much. I appreciate you joining me. And um, yeah, good luck going forward with everything. All right. Thank you very much for having me. You bet. Take care. You too. Well, one of the things I love most about doing this podcast is how much I benefit myself personally from the awesome content that my guests bring, and Hart was no exception. You know, it's awesome to have people on when not only are they fantastic lawyers, but they're just great people. And you can see Hart, super humble, just goes about what he's doing in, you know, uh, with a sincere desire to make the lives of his clients better. So, um with most of the, the the guests that I have on the podcast, if you have anything related to refugee and you are in Ontario or in on in Ontario or even remotely close to where Hart's office is, um, I would highly, highly encourage you to contact him and use him. He's an exceptional person. You could see he clearly understands what he's doing and uh, has honed that expertise over the many, many years of practice. Um, yeah, it's as I think back and ponder on how we connected, it's amazing um, just just how close our immigration bar is in Canada. And uh, I think we are a special clan. 
you know, we got into this not for the money, but to genuinely make differences in people's lives. And uh, as some of you know, I, I do a ton of outreach to the whole world of express entry, which is people looking to immigrate to Canada who um, are uh, are basically have high human capital and are individuals that the government is targeting to help from an economic standpoint. And I've got my private Facebook groups and my YouTube channel and, and all those kinds of things. But there's nothing more satisfying than, than knowing that what you're doing is truly giving someone an opportunity that they may not otherwise have uh, to either immigrate to Canada to remain here or in the case of the work that Hart does to escape just a terrible situation. And so um, total, total uh, respect and, and, um, and gratitude for the work that Hart and all of you refugee lawyers out there, the work that you do is so important. And uh, so thanks. All right. Well, this concludes this episode. I think uh, you will have enjoyed it. Um, as I said in the intro, my goal is to hit 100 episodes. So if you have an idea that you'd like to canvas that you think would benefit all of the other immigration lawyers and other people who tune in and listen to this podcast, reach out to me at mholthy at stringham.ca. So that's S-T-R-I-N-G-A-M dot C-A. And let me know. I'd love to have you join me. Um, the whole goal of this podcast is to provide information that people can trust. And you can clearly see from the caliber of individuals that I bring on the podcast that uh, that this is just, it, it's it's a wonderful resource for people because of those who are so willing to freely give of their knowledge and time at no, with no expectation in return. So I also want to emphasize that if you have been listening to the podcast and you're wondering, hmm, should I hire a lawyer? You know, who should I use? Well, strongly consider the guys and the, the gals that I bring on here um, because there's a reason. They are leaders in their field. They're exceptional in what they do. And uh, they don't often have these massive marketing budgets to, you know, to get their presence out to the world. They rely on word of mouth. And, um, you know, there's a world, the world of immigration representation is saturated by people who are willing to, to offer assistance uh, for all kinds of different prices. And one thing I know is that you get, you get what you pay for. And with each of these candidates, you know, each of these um, uh, people that have been so gracious to give of their time and come on the podcast, um, in many respects, um, you know, I, I think if you looked at the fee structures that they charge, compared them with consultants or, or other dabblers out there, you'd find that, um, yeah, the, the, the rates are 110% worth it. So there's my plug for all of these guests who come on the podcast. Hart is no exception. Reach out to him. You can see... Um, he indicated in, in the episode that email is the best way to, to contact him. So so do that if you have a refugee matter. And uh, thanks for tuning in, guys. This is, this is a joy for me. It's absolutely a joy. I love doing this. And uh, I also want to thank all of those people that left reviews. Wow. For so many years, well, I shouldn't say so many years. I think we've been going about three years or so. I had no reviews on iTunes, but now I've got like 15. <laughs> and so um, thank you so much. If you also in turn have found this uh, this podcast of use to you, please jump on over there, leave a review. It helps to get the podcast more exposure 
Um, the site itself gets over 20,000 visitors every month, and uh, it's just purely, yeah, uh, people looking to, to get guidance and direction, and hopefully that's, what's, that's what they're getting from this. So thanks for tuning in. You guys are awesome. And keep listening and fire in your thoughts and, and questions for future podcast episodes. And uh, I think probably 67, I'm going to take some time just to talk about my practice, what I do. Lots of people have been, um, you know, are, are quite interested in the things that I'm doing and uh, the types of um, marketing initiatives that I've been pursuing. So tune in for 67 here in a little bit. And, um, and I'll be sharing just a little bit of information on how I practice and Understand, I'm in Lethbridge, Alberta, which is the whopping metropolis of little, you know, I think we're right around 100,000 people, but this is not the immigration hotbed. But immigration is my practice, and uh, I've been able to maintain a relevance um, because of some of the things that I've been doing. So obviously you start to apply these principles and some of the things I'm doing in, in larger centers. I'm sure I'd be doing a whole lot better financially than I am right now. But life is good. My family is awesome. Uh, my four kids are the joy of my life. My wife is is the anchor to our family. And um, really, in all honesty, life couldn't be better. All right, guys, I want to wish you all the best um, as you navigate your way through this amazingly crazy, constantly changing world of Canadian immigration law, policy, and practice. Take care. Oh, Canada. See you in